Have any of you ever been given a job that you were not truly qualified to do? And I'm not talking about being a parent. But I'm, I'm talking about maybe on your specific job where you have worked at some point in time, your boss, whether it be a male or female, has come along and, and said and told you, what I want you to do is I want you to go do such and such. And you think to yourself, why on God's green earth have they asked me to do that? I used to have a boss that was notorious for that. He had, there was nothing within his DNA that said, hey, maybe I should give him a heads up or prepare him for or give him some insight to. Whenever he needed something done, he would call, say, be at this time, at this time, be at this place, and uh, you're going to meet a guy there. Have no idea what I'm going to meet him for, nothing, hang up the phone, and that was it. Have you ever experienced something at least similar to that? Um, with no training, no explanation, no help, no anything. How did that make you feel? Horrible, right? Unprepared. The whole time, you know, that I would be in the, in the truck getting ready to show up to this place, I'm panicking. What am I going to face? What's the deal? And most of the time it was meeting with city officials. Something I had zero qualification to, 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 to deal with, you know, concerning construction, necessarily. I didn't have the insight, but some way, somehow, it worked out. But it didn't always work out. Did it work out for you every time? No, it never works out. I mean, if your boss or my boss would have given you at least the main drift or some examples of what was going to happen, or if he would at least given you a word of encouragement or warned you what could possibly happen. Like if you show up and you drop the ball on this, we're going to lose this job. Just, just give me something, right? You know, that, these are all the possible things that, that work through, uh, you know, possibly your mind. Just a little bit of help. Anything that would happen. Sometimes... A little heads up goes a long way. Well, last week, my sermon was entitled The Ephesian Problem. Paul had charged Timothy to deal with or to stop certain persons from teaching a different doctrine. These certain persons had devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies and the text tells us that they had desired to become teachers of the law and that they, but yet they were without understanding in, in what they were saying and about the things which they were making these confident assertions. Well, I'm sure this was not the only problem at Ephesus, but this was the reason for which Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus. But unlike ourselves and our, and our own experiences being left maybe to do a job or to take on a certain task without any help or encouragement or explanation, Paul did not leave Timothy in the dark. He actually is writing this letter to him to encourage him, to prepare him, to do what it takes in order to help Timothy along the way. And this week's, my sermon title is not very creative, but it's no longer the, the Ephesian problem, but it's really things concerning the Ephesian problem. It's really a part two of last week's sermon in the, in the longer stretch of chapter one. And, and what we're going to see is that this section, verses 12 and, and forward, it will serve as an example to Timothy and to the church that Paul is going to give his testimony and this will be an example to Timothy and, and probably the readers of that letter at Ephesus and Crete later on, but especially uh, the church at Ephesus. And, and, and Timothy's testimony will serve as, a, as an example to Timothy, but I believe that it will also serve as a contrast. A contrast to the false teachers and their false teaching. 
I also believe that testimony are the, that when it served, when Paul's testimony serves as an example, it's not just an example to Timothy himself, but it's also an example to the church of what God will do with rebellious sinners who come to faith in Christ. By, 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 and by, uh, a contrast, what I mean is, is that Paul's life, the gospel, will serve in stark contrast with the lives of those who are false teachers. You see, Paul's testimony pits, if you would, the gospel of grace with the law or the misuse of the law or the, or the misunderstanding of the law. And what Paul will do also do is seek to encourage Timothy and give him a warning, uh, to give a warning to those who continue to teach a different doctrine. I hope today that if you could, like any other Sunday, I could say this every Sunday, (laughs) as I want you to think about the seriousness of this word. The seriousness of sound doctrine, the seriousness of the gospel and its clarity, the seriousness of, of it's easy if you're a church attender to come into a church week in and week out and hear this religious verbiage, the gospel, love, faith, grace, mercy, and hear the religious verbiage uh, of these words and really not pay mind to the meaning of those words, the significance of those words. And as we're going to see in Paul's testimony, this, his, the testimony of his salvation and the testimony is of his calling should be a reminder not only to us as a church, but also a reminder to us as individuals. That the gospel that Paul preaches transforms lives. And this is one of the things that we need to take serious. And this morning, the first thing that I want us to look at is an example and a contrast in verses 12 through 17. But the first part of that is what I want us to see. I want us to see Paul's thankfulness in verses 12 through 14. Now, before we do that, I want you to think back or just look back to, to verse, uh, verse 13 because that really sets up this next section. In the previous verse, Paul commended the gospel and the God who had tr- entrusted him with it. Now he commands the person to whom Paul and Timothy have uh, dedicated themselves, that is, Christ Jesus their Lord. And now Paul will give testimony of his conversion and calling. Look at verse 12, if you would. Now I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. One of the, I love how he starts out this passage. I thank him. You see, he's really, if you, if you really think about that, that small phrase, especially within the context of, of verses 2 through 14 and even through uh, verse 17, that this in, I thank him, meaning Jesus Christ, he is really the heart of Paul's testimony. Now, we all give testimony to various things that God has done in our lives. But oftentimes when we give testimony, it's about me. It's about what, you know, how God changed me and how I, I don't live the way that I used to live because of me. And, and oftentimes when we give testimony, it's really not about him. Oftentimes it's really about us. But Paul was very clear in this testimony that, that, that this was about Christ. And he, he starts off his testimony by saying, I thank him. That is Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is an indicator to us that, that, that Jesus Christ is the active agent in Paul's testimony. Central to his story is Jesus. Now this should be a reminder to us 
That when, that, that as Christians, as followers of Christ, that no matter what we've gone through in life, the things that we are experiencing, do you know who should be centered to all that we do? Jesus. He should be the central character in our testimony. Because he was for Paul. He goes on in verse 12 and he really gives a a couple of main reasons for his thanksgiving. And the first thing that he points out is, is something that's very positive. Notice what he says there. I thank him who has given me strength. That very term, their strength, is, is related or oftentimes can be translated power. Who has given me strength? Who has given me power? What Paul was saying is that Jesus is his source of strength and power. Now, we would acknowledge that, at least in degree, that our lives are really empowered by the person of Christ. But in practical ways... Sometimes we don't live like it, do we? That I get up and I go to work out of my own strength. That I do the things. And, and maybe if there's a, a, a big thing going on, you know, a big spiritual thing, then I might rely on the Lord for his strength in order to accomplish that particular thing. But much of our lives, we, in all practical manners, we live out of, out of our own strength. But Paul saw the source of his strength as being Jesus. This is not the only time that Paul talks about this in the New Testament. One simple one that we probably all know from memory is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, when Paul says, I can do all things through him who, what? Strengthens me. It doesn't, now notice that, in relation to what I've already said, I can do all things where I need him who strengthens me. No, all things. It means when I get up in the morning and I have to face the day. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for myself, there are some mornings in my life, not so much now as it used to be, where I would wake up in the morning and I would think to to myself, I got to get up and I got to go to work again. And it's only going to be by God's strength that will get me through the day. This is relying on God's strength, even the practical matters of life. Or maybe, you know, and I'm just trying to think of examples off the top of my head, maybe you have a bad relationship with another individual. There's been some back and forth and some yang-yang, you know, a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, just the butting of heads. And you think, you know what, I had rather not deal with this situation at this time. Listen to me. As long as you depend upon your own strength in order to deal with situations like that, you will ultimately tire of it. You will make excuses in your own mind about how this does not need to be pursued anymore or how I don't need to address this situation. And in reality, what you need is the strength of Christ in your own life, in all things. Paul saw Jesus as the agent, the active agent in his fortification. But I asked the question, at least I asked the question, why does Paul mention this here? What does this have to do with anything? I think it was simply to remind Timothy of the available resources that he had at his disposal. Resources that that he would need for the days of head. The conflict, the dealing with false teachers, and all the things that, 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 that's the fallout of that. When you think about it, think about it from this perspective. If, you have false te- if we had false teachers in our midst, and the New Testament talks about how fa- the false teachers lead away old women, right? The, the easily influenced... And they cause disruption and they break up entire families. The New Testament teaches us that. And these were the very things that it it wasn't an issue of Timothy showing up every Sunday morning and preaching the gospel. He was having to deal with problems. Listen to me. Problems that would ultimately destroy the lives of individuals, then, then destroy the lives and cause chaos within families and ultimately destroy the church. 
This is what Timothy would be facing. So part of what Paul was saying was a a reminder to Timothy. I thank him who gives me the strength to do what I need to do. This is a note maybe for us all here today. is, Is that there's always a temptation to fall back on our natural resources. On our own strengths, on our own abilities, on our own talents to, uh, to get us through the day. And, and, and that's what Paul is really reminding Timothy. Don't fall back on your natural abilities, but fall back on the very power of God. Paul knew that Timothy's natural inclination, because Timothy's no different than you, he's, he's human. That Timothy's natural inclination, his strength, his talents were no match for what he was about to face. False teachers, seductive doctrines, the confusion they create in lives, the confusion they bring to households, and ultimately the church. Daphne and I, I don't want to say had the privilege, but had the opportunity of dealing with this at one point in our lives when we lived in Louisiana. It was an individual that had recently made a profession of faith in Christ, started coming to Bible study, listened to the Word of God, studied the Word of God, was a good student of the Word of God, but little by little I began to hear things. When I started talking about sin, that when I started talking about sinners, that when I started talking about the judgment of God upon sinners in this world, I began to get feedback from him that he had a different point of view. And he really, just to make a long story short, his view was is that God was ultimately going to save everyone. Universalism. And I remember asking him this question. I said, where did you come up with these ideas? Because you have not come up with these ideas from the teaching that you get from this church. Didn't want to admit it. And I pressed him a little bit farther. I said, where do you, where do you get this? I don't see this in the scripture. Where is this coming from? He said, let me ask you a question. Next week, can I invite a friend to come and he can give a a good, better explanation than I could? And I said, sure, come on. So the next week we gather together in the Bible study and I start teaching. And right in the middle of my teaching, he interrupts. I like rudely interrupts and has something to say. And I just kind of thank you and tried to shut it down. And I kept teaching. He would stand up again and he'd interrupt. And, you know, and it was just this back and forth for about 20 minutes about who was going to be in control of this Bible study. And finally, at one point, I said, what gifts? And he says, what gives is, is that you are teaching a bunch of garbage. This is not the God of love. This is not the Jesus who loves everyone and gave himself to save the world. And immediately I knew where my friend's viewpoints were coming from. These guys had worked together for life. And his false teaching about universalism that God will ultimately save everyone had begun to bleed over into that. And not only did it bleed over to this this individual, but man his wife who was grounded in the gospel. There was conflict over and over and over again. And it really affected our church because in time we had to let him go from our fellowship. This is exactly what Timothy was facing. And it's no easy thing. So when we think about how false doctrine can infiltrate and ruin individual lives and households and even the church, this is something that we as a local congregation must take seriously. Paul goes on to say, you know, uh, that in him he has given me strength. and, And he goes on to talk about how he has judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Talking about that that God is the very source of his strength. But yet God is the one who looked at Paul and considered him faithful. And called him into the service of, 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 of ministry. But what Paul is saying here, he was not conflating 
um, himself, you know, up in, into this position of a, of, of a high point that I'm, look at what God, God saw something good within me. You see, he was still talking about him, that is Christ Jesus, his Lord. If Paul, if Jesus saved Paul, and he called Paul, and he appointed Paul to service, then Timothy might find encouragement that he too was right where the Lord ultimately wants him, in Ephesus, confronting error with the truth. Um, you know, that he might find comfort that if, 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 if God called Paul to do a certain thing, that he would find comfort that, that Jesus had called Timothy to do a certain thing, which is to confront the era that was going on at Ephesus, to preach the gospel of Christ crucified. Now, not only were there reason, there was a positive reasons for Paul's thanksgiving, but there was a negative reason. I say negative, but it really turns out to be positive in the end. Look at verse 13. Look at this phrase, though formally. <laughs> Paul, in these next couple of verses, will be recalling his past. That is the time before he knew Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 13, or the, or the latter part of, of verse 13. He says, though formally... I was, what is this? A blasphemer. He names three things. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was ins uh, an insolent opponent. Now, for the sake of time, I'll give you just quick definitions. But when Paul said he was a blasphemer, he just simply meant that he was speaking evil against God. He was a persecutor. In other words, literally, persecutor means pursuer. He was a pursuer of those Christ followers. And listen, let me say this. He wasn't pursuing them because he liked them. The term persecutor is related to the next phrase there, the next word, insolent opponent. In other words, he pursued them and ultimately he treated others aggressively and with great cruelty. This is what the New Testament says of the Apostle Paul when he was formerly known as Saul. What Paul was saying is, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Now let me pose this question to you this morning. Do you think blaspheming, cruel, persecution, persecuting people or persecuting the church should be judged by God? I mean, do you truly believe that blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent opponents to the church will ultimately be judged by the Lord? Surely so. If his, if his word is true, then surely he will do that. But I want you to notice the next phrase. Now, this is Paul's testimony. Paul says this, but I received mercy. I received mercy. In other words, I received pardon from my guilt. I was a persecutor. I was blasphemous. I was insolent. I was as rotten as an individual could be. That's why he goes on a little bit later and says, I am foremost, foremost a sinner. But I received mercy, he said. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What Paul was saying, I was lost in the worst kind of way, but some way, somehow, I received mercy, even though I really and truly did not understand what I was doing. Listen to me. That's the difference between us and them. I mean us, what I mean us, those of us that, that truly know Christ, that understand his grace, that understand his mercy, the difference between us and the rest of the world, they continue to act ignorantly in their unbelief. And in a sense, they're absolutely unaware that one day God will 
judge them. Paul, on the other hand, readily keeping Jesus at at the focus of his testimony, that in him he received mercy. Notice what verse 14, it goes on to say, and the grace of of our Lord overflowed for me. This is, Paul talks about this over and over. He talks about it in Romans. That that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God is gracious to us. And even when we sin, it just seems like the grace just keeps coming back and covering that sin. And when we sin, it just keeps coming back. And it overflows that God's grace to his children is this overflowing reality. And if you've been a Christian for any time in your life, you will recognize that God is always gracious to us. It never stops. Just like we sing, it never stops. It never stops. It's always overflowing. And Paul said he had received mercy and the grace of the Lord overflowed with me, with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The very faith that we have, the very love that we have are are representative, A, of who Christ is, but yet the very faith that we have and the love that we have comes from him. The reason that I can have faith and love It's because he bestows those things. He's gracious to me. He's so gracious that he opens my eyes and he grants faith uh, faith, uh, to me. And to you, this is ultimately what Paul's thankfulness was about. That in him he had found these things. He had found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want us to see God's purpose in saving Paul. In verses 15 and 16, it says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that is in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now you see this phrase that um, Brother Mike had already mentioned about this trustworthy saying. It's important for us to, to understand exactly what that is. Now I don't want to spend a lot of time here this morning, but the reason why I say we need to know what that is, that this phrase, trustworthy saying, is mentioned five times by the Apostle Paul in the three books that we're going to be studying. In First and Second Timothy and Titus, he uses it five different times. But here's something important to note. He uses that phrase nowhere else in the New Testament. Only in the pastoral epistles. And, and, and this saying, or if you would, formula, has an intended purpose for its intended readers, namely Timothy, Titus, and their churches. This is a summation of making a long story short. What a a trustworthy saying is, it is simply a technique by which Paul, in one motion, re-articulates the gospel. For example, when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a trustworthy saying that in one motion he rearticulates his gospel or a certain teaching and asserts its authenticity and apostolic authority and alienates the opposing teaching that by implication does not belong in the category of a trustworthy teaching. Now that's a long definition. Go back and watch it again. You can get the full definition. And it's, the, it's a way of saying, I'll put it in Alabama terms for you. It's a way of Paul saying, hey, pay attention. Okay? This is a trustworthy saying. What I want you to do is I want you to pay attention. Because what I am saying is important. And I want you to understand that it's reliable. 
And it's as opposed to the false teaching or, the, or what the false teachers are saying. That's the Alabama way of understanding it. When Paul comes along and says, this is a trustworthy saying, hey guys, pay attention. When I tell you these little things, you really need to pay attention because what I'm telling you is really in opposition of what the false teachers are saying. When I say to you, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, what they are saying, there's another way. And that other way is by the keeping of of the law, by being keepers of the law, that if you're good in your Jewish roots and and you pay attention to, you know, what the law says, then you can ultimately be saved. But what Paul was saying was trustworthy. Listen, what what Paul was saying was you are saved by grace through faith. This is why Paul used this term trustworthy sayings. Commit it to memory that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the gospel. The modern palate may not like these words. The modern palate may may go, sinner, don't like it. I need saving? (laughs) Not really. This is the modern palate. But if we we believe the scripture, I've never done that in my life. That's that's obnoxious. (laughs) I promise to never do that again. (laughs) But this is the gospel. We cannot wander away from this message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We cannot walk away from it. That's why Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying. Because I tell you why it's a trustworthy saying. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. These are the words of Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, Jesus, and, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. This is why Paul says this is a trustworthy saying. Not because it was grounded in Paul. It was a trustworthy saying because it was grounded in the truth of the gospel. This is what Paul says you need to pay attention to. And because this is true, these words are true, and these words are trustworthy, notice if you would in verse 16. Verse 16 goes on to say, But I received mercy for this reason. That is in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see, according to this verse, Christ, that is Jesus, set Paul as an example for others who would believe in him, that is Jesus, for eternal life. Paul was the example. Listen to me. He was the example of how sinners are saved. He was the example of how sinners are saved. And this only happens when the gospel is understood clearly. The law, on the other hand, was never meant to save anyone. We, like Paul, are saved by grace through faith. And Paul's testimony was an example to Timothy and the church on how the gospel works. The gospel of Grace, being saved through faith, listen to me, I hope you understand, is our standard here. It was the standard for Paul. It should be the standard for our church. And, and I would encourage you, I want to use Paul's words, do not swerve from this. Do not swerve from the gospel of grace. Grace. 
Do not swerve, as he said, talking about those certain persons, into vain discussions and speculations about things that will ultimately keep people from understanding the gospel of grace. This was Paul's greatest desire is to see the gospel grow out, go out clearly. And I want us to look at the next section there on doxology in the praise of his honor and glory. I read several commentaries and they always, not all, but a couple of them said, each of these sections are kind of these weird asides, like they're not connected. That Paul said this, then he said something else, and he said, and it's like the, what he was saying was not connected. Just read chapter one. It's all connected. If you think about it, it's a logical flow from, from verse three on down. I'm leaving you to charge people not to teach different doctrines. These people, these certain people, they lead people astray, they speculate, they desire to be teachers of law, they don't even understand. Hey, let me go ahead and just tell you why I'm here. The law is good if you use it right. The purpose of the law is to show people that they're sinners. And, and to teach them that they're sinners. And, and, he, and he goes on even a little bit later, he says, but... Don't teach anything this contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of which I am entrusted. Paul talks about it there and he goes on to say, here's my testimony. Here's how I was saved by grace through faith. God had mercy upon me. Logical flow. And when you get down, he gets to the end of his testimony and what does he do? He breaks out in worship. He breaks out in doxology to the king of ages. I wish I could sing. I would do it. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be glory and honor forever and ever. Because I can't sing. You know what I do? I get loud. I just get excited. This was, this doxology, doxology simply means worship. This is a natural end to a true understanding of the reality of the gospel. Think about it for a moment. Paul's salvation, our salvation should result in worship. Let me ask you a question. Why are we here this morning? I'm going to answer that question. Not for you, but for me. And I hope that you can answer it this way. We are here this morning because we have been saved by God's grace. We've been saved, we've been born again, and because of the cross, God has displayed his grace to us in Christ. So today, we gather together on Sunday to worship him because of his salvation that he has granted to us. And that's what's happening in this passage. Paul gives testimony of his salvation, that he was made righteous, that he received grace upon grace, that God was good. So... The, the only response that Paul had to do was praise God. Now listen to me. It's hard for me to judge you. Because I know me. But if you've come here just because you're religious, I get it. If you come here just because you feel like this is what you need to do, this is what you've always done. This is what your parents did and your grandparents did. They just went to church on Sunday. Maybe you come here because this is where your friends are. I get it. And in this moment, I will not judge you. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. The next time you walk in these doors, have your heart prepared to worship God. Because if you understand the gospel of grace, if you understand that God had mercy upon you, the very thing, the very results of that understanding is that it moves you and I toward the worship of who God is. That he is, that he is, that he is the king of the ages. He's not the king of England. 
He's the king of ages. He has no peer. He is the sovereign, not over a country. He is the sovereign over all creation. He's immortal. That is, he will not die. He is eternal. That's how he is unique to any other ruler. He's invisible. That is, God is a spirit. And he's beyond the constraints of this physical world. This is who God is. To the king of ages, he says, immortal, invisible, the only God. Or as the King James, if I remember correctly, says, the only wise God. To him, this goes back to this, in him, because of him, the very central character of uh, uh, figure in Paul's testimony, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, to him be the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. My hope and prayer for us is that we would exalt God's name in all things. That one day we will learn to sing, no pressure worship team, the old hymn, Immortal, Invisible. You remember Immortal, invisible, God only wise. That's all you get. That was bad enough. Now, this is a reminder. At the end of this book, Paul uses similar terminology in another doxological statement. In, in chapter 6 in cha- of this same book, chapter 6 and verse 15. And 16. Let me make sure that that's right. Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Uh, Talking about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display. He who is blessed. Oh, yeah. He who is blessed. Now, notice this. Notice the wording. And the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever, ever uh, seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal uh, dominion. Amen. You see, praise and worship was up on the lips of the Apostle Paul because of who Jesus was and what Jesus had ultimately accomplished. Now, I have just a few minutes to hit this second point. An encouragement and a warning in verses 18 through 20. First, let's look at the encouragement, verse 18. He says, I charge, uh, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And let's go into the first part of verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. This charge was a thoughtful charge because he calls Timothy my child. Maybe his child in the faith. He says, um, he says there, this charge. What exactly was this charge? This was ultimately the charge that he gave back in verse 3 to remain at Ephesus and to order certain people not to teach those different doctrines. Uh, this was what Paul had in view in verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. See, such a call while placing obligation upon Timothy was meant to also reassure Timothy as a young man of God's greatness and, and grace. It was just simply a reminder to him because of what he was going to be facing. These prophecies given at some point in the past were words given from God defining what kind of uh, person Timothy was and would become. Now, we don't know. There's no uh, nowhere in the New Testament, at least that I'm aware of, that talks about exactly what this prophecy was. But Paul knew about it. 
And obviously Timothy knew about it. And this was to be an, a reminder and also an encouragement to him. Now think about this in context. Paul had just given testimony about his conversion and his calling into the ministry. Now what Paul is doing, he's reminding Timothy of his same experience. You remember way back when? When the prophecy was given about you and your ministry? And this calling really was to affirm the gifts of God's investment in him for the spreading of the gospel and the bringing of the glory of God. This was Timothy. This was what the prophecy most likely was ultimately about. In accordance to the prophecies previously made about you. Now notice this. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Warfare is a topic that we've tackled over this past year. It's a military term that admits to a hostile environment. Passage that we studied out of the book of Ephesians, where Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers, of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul understood this clearly. And toward the end of his own life, Paul offered himself as an example for Timothy to follow. When he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he reminds Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Now what he's saying, Timothy, it's time for you. I've done my job. I've taken up the spiritual arms. I've put on the armor. I've fought the good fight. But now you are to take up the good fight. Paul says, I've finished the way, the race. I have kept the faith. Now it was Timothy's turn. If we could just pause back for a minute. There's many of you that have been keeping up the good fight for a long time now. And I want to say this. I commend you. I commend you for, 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 for grabbing a hold of the gospel and all of its purity and protecting it. I want to commend you for, for not allowing the world to seep in and to confuse the gospel message. That's what I, I commend you for. But I want to say this. There are some of you Your warfare is only beginning. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Take up, take up, like like Timothy, and, and fight the good fight. Maybe you're older and you've been a Christian for some time, but this whole warfare thing, hey, I'm just happy to be alive and I come to church every day, da 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 da. You know, that's just me. That's who I am. I implore you to fight the good fight. Verse 19, he goes on to say, talking about Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience like two pieces of the equipment that are used in warfare. Here it seems that faith is as belief or the activity of trusting God in his revelation. This is what Timothy should have. He should have faith, trusting God, and a good conscience is the state of which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers in his obedience toward God. In other words, a good conscience should serve as a rudder to help navigate through life's dangers and pitfalls. A good conscience. That is a, an ability to be able to navigate between what I know is right and good and being able to see and how I navigate in this world. That's how a good conscience serves as a rudder. But lastly, he gives this, a warning. The second part of verse 19, Paul says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What did they reject? I think that was in the first part of the verse. Probably the faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this very thing, some have made, the the Scripture says, a shipwreck of their faith. 
In other words, they've made a disaster. They've destroyed not, probably not only their faith, but the faith of others by accepting these false teachings. And he gives an actual example. In, in, earlier in chapter 1, he talks about certain persons. Certain persons. Well, now he names some of those certain persons. Those certain persons were named Hymenaeus and Alexander. He brings these people up by name. And maybe it's the same Alexander in chapter 4 and verse 14, but chapter uh, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse se- uh, 17, Hymenaeus is, is brought up again for being a false teacher along with Philetus. Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. What does that make you think? How does it make you feel when you hear words like that? That he's taking these two people and he's handed them over to Satan. To put it in a way that maybe we might understand today, Paul had excommunicated these two men from the congregation. And what he had done, what he was simply saying, is that he had turned them out into the world because this is, the, this is where Satan rules. He turned them back over to the prince of the power of the air. If you're reminded... This is what Paul reminded the Ephesians about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he reminded them, you formerly once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. As an unbeliever, you were controlled by schemes. And the reason I think that Paul did this, well, he says it in the text, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul had a purpose in in throwing them out of the church. Sometimes this is necessary. It's never an easy issue. But if false teaching should rise up within our congregation, if there was no way to reconcile this, then this is the only end that we have. For the good of the church... And for the clarity of the gospel, it should serve as an eye-opening reminder to us that we should not play church in our own way. God has ordered the church, and this is what our study is going to be about. God has ordered the church to behave and to maneuver and to think in a certain way and not to just to be carried away, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There's two things in conclusion that I'll say. I hope this passage causes you and I to think rightly about false teaching and how false teaching should be confronted and dealt with. And keep in mind, sometimes even by extreme measures, this should cause us to pause and to think about who we're listening to on the radio and also about what books that we are reading. And especially on an individual basis, we all have those that we listen to on the TV and the radio or the internet. We all have the books that we read and we must keep in mind, we must be careful not to allow heresies and false teachings slip in. But listen to me. This was not slipping in from the outside. Paul gave the warning that from within these teachings would come. And this is exactly what had happened. And what I'll give you another bit. What you should also consider is your own spiritual baggage. Your or my spiritual background. And this is why I say be careful. And I, and I say this with all respect. I want you to ask yourself the question. We all come from various religious backgrounds. Ask yourself this question. Am I more Catholic than biblical? Okay? I'm not picking on the Catholics. I'm going down the line here. Am I I more charismatic than I am biblical? Am I more Baptist than biblical? Here, I'm just going to throw us in there. Am I more EV free than biblical? Now, I'm not in, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the EV free. 
But the question is that we all come from something and we have this baggage. And I, I see it actually all the time when I talk with people. You have a conversation, you go, yeah, you can tell what background they're from just by the words they use. You know, and, but, but sometimes this spiritual baggage that we bring into the church might be the very spark that causes problems down the road. And we need to be careful of that. Not only should it cause us to think rightly about false teaching, but it should cause us to think rightly about the gospel. This is important. Ask yourself this question. Do I truly understand the gospel? Ask yourself this question. Do I understand that I'm a sinner? Listen to me. When I say sinner, that's not code for uh, I make mistakes. What happens in a lot of evangelical churches is they teach around the gospel and they say that we're bad people. And the word sinner becomes code for I make mistakes, I'm not perfect. And listen to me, that's not what a sinner is. Being imperfect, not doing good things, is a result of being a sinner. A sinner at his core is someone who is truly opposed to God. And when I say opposed to God, you can say, well, I'm not a sinner because I believe in God and I've gone to church my whole life. But yet, somewhere deep down inside, you live your life as if it is your own. That is a sinner. That I'm in charge of my life, that I make my own decisions, that, yeah, I'm religious and there's this word over here and I read it and, I, and when it's beneficial, I accept it, but when it's not, I reject it. And do I see my sin as, 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 as breaking off the, my relationship with God? If I don't see my sin as separating from me from God, then I do not understand what it means to be a sinner. Because I sin and God is holy, I cannot be in relationship with the holy God. You also should see this, that I am in need of God's mercy. Two times in this passage, Paul says, I received mercy and I received grace. You understand first, I'm a sinner. You must understand that you need mercy and grace. Why does a sinner need mercy? Because God will one day punish the sinner. He will not just punish the sin. He will punish the sinner. And unless you or I receive the mercy of the Lord, he will one day punish you or I. And this is why we need to take the gospel seriously. Christ didn't come into the world and give himself up to make you a better person. He came into the world, as Paul said in this text, to save sinners. The last thing I think we say is this. That if I understand that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of God's mercy and grace, there's nothing that I can do to understand to, to deserve it. What I must do is believe it. I must embrace it. It's grace. God's unmerited favor. There's not, there's nothing that I can do. I could ever do. It's by grace through faith that Paul tells us over and over again. That's all that I give you today. It's been a lot. But I want you to see the importance of dealing with unsound doctrine and what unsound doctrine really is. It pulls not only individuals, it causes chaos in families, it brings destruction to churches, and it because it ultimately pulls us away, away from the gospel of grace. Now they're going to come out here and we're going to sing. But I want you to contemplate something this morning. If you have never truly been born again, today can be the day of salvation for you. I'm going to be right over here. There's going to be some others. You come to me and say, you know what, Pastor Danny? I'm the person that you were talking about. 
I'm not going to be ashamed to say it, but I'm, I've been a religious person, uh, you know, or whatever it is, but I've really never seen myself as a sinner who needed a Savior. I just didn't understand it. And today I understand it. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to talk through it. Do not be embarrassed. We're going to rejoice together. And, and, and God's going to do a great work in your life. Let's sing together. This passage, especially in verses 12 and following, are a great example, a template for how we should give our testimony. If you notice what he does in this, and I say this, go back and look at it later today or this week, that he starts out by giving thanksgiving. And then he talks about his past life. This was my life before Christ. I was this, you know, a blasphemer, a persecutor. Then he goes on and he talks about the grace and mercy that he received in Christ. So it was the kind of like, this was before Christ, this is how I come to Christ. And then he goes on and talks about his calling, his life after he was born again. Great template. Go back, study this passage. And I, when I say study this passage, study it so well that it's just ingrained in you. So when it comes an opportunity for you to think about your testimony, you don't have to think, oh my goodness, what do I say? You think, ah, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and following. And here, so I'm going to do it just like that. And the second thing is, memorize. Chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 17. Great verses for memory. All right. Sign up for Gunner's class. Prayer next week. And listen. Pray after the services. God is dealing with you. I would love to talk to you, especially about your salvation. Let's do the benediction. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Go in peace.